This morning's text is found in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down till they are called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Malachi. He prophesied about 450 B.C. in Israel. And you remember the situation, I think, in those days, perhaps the the exile was over. They had gone into exile for some 70 years. Some came trickling back more quickly than others. It was over now, and Jerusalem had been rebuilt, and the temple had been restored. But the people hadn't learned their lesson. When you read through this book of Malachi, you're dismayed at what you find after God's attempt to to discipline his people. You find that they're skeptical of God's love, careless in worship, indifferent to the truth, disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, and stingy in their offerings. And we're going to see all those things as we preach through this book over the next 10 or 11 weeks. To this carnal and rebellious people, God sent his messenger Malachi. And the first message that he put upon the lips of Malachi for them was, I have loved you, says the Lord, in verse 2. But let's start with verse 1. Literally, it says, the burden, not the oracle, but the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. God had given Malachi a burden many times in the Old Testament, dozens of times. The word burden refers to what a prophet is called upon to deliver to the people of God. The word of God is a burden. Now, why? Why is it called a burden as the prophet carries it and delivers it to the people? I thought of two possible reasons. One is that there is nothing trifling, light, or insignificant in the word of God. It is always weighty and heavy and substantial. There's no meringue. In the word of God, it's all meat. Even the milk is meaty in the word of God. And so I think the first reason for why the word of God is called a burden is because there's always weight to it, substance, power and uh, firmness. There's a second reason I thought of that might account for why it's called a burden And that is that so many times the prophets knew that when they delivered this burden, even when it was good news, it would not be believed. You remember Isaiah, how he cried out that God had called upon him to minister to a people and what the ministry would result in is in fact making the heart of his people fat and their eyes closed and their ears clogged. 
And what a heaviness that was to Isaiah, so that in chapter 53 he cries out, Who believes our report? So even when the burden is the good news, it's sometimes the aroma of death for people who are perishing because they won't believe it. Now, my understanding of what it means to be a good pastor is that I ought to bring to you the burden of every text as my burden when I preach. And that the weight of the text I ought to feel and attempt to help you feel. And that the substance of every text I ought to perceive and help you perceive. And that just as Malachi delivered a burden to the Israelites, I ought to deliver the same burden to you this morning. As though it were my burden straight from God for you, his people, this morning. It's a burden, this text. Because it's weighty and heavy and substantial And because I know everybody won't believe what I have to say. I picture the teaching of this text like a cloud. Big dark cloud on the battlefield of life. And moving toward the soldiers of the Lord of hosts. The soldiers, many of them are wounded. Mortally wounded. And they are in great misery waiting for the last blow to be struck by the enemy. And many on the battlefield see the cloud coming, this big, dark cloud, and they get angry. And they say, why should there be darkness added to our misery? But others remember the words of the hymn of William Cooper. Ye fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The cloud you so much dread is big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. And then the cloud comes on and moves over the soldiers of the Almighty. And lo and behold, there is light in the cloud. It's light in the cloud. And ten or thirty Or 80 years later, as the cloud moves with these soldiers across the battlefield of life, they get to a place beyond all pain and where there's peace forevermore. And along the way, as the cloud is slowly moving with its enfolded soldiers, as it's slowly moving, there are many outside the cloud who look at the cloud and sneer at the cloud and mock the cloud and say, it's dark, it's a dark cloud. And sometimes the bullets get through the cloud. And the Lord doesn't spare his people that. But none of those bullets ever brings them to ruin. They survive and make it to glory. In other words, the teaching of this text appears to some as a very dark cloud. And to others, there is light within. There is peace and there is Trembling awe. A trembling joy within this cloud. And a peace and safety as high as Everest and as deep as the recesses of the universe. My prayer as we look at this text is that God might give you eyes to see the light in the cloud and the grace to enter.
verse 2. The first thing God has to say to the people of Israel is, I have loved you, says the Lord. Does that make you tremble? I have loved you, says the Lord. Isaiah says, this is the man to whom I will look. Him that is contrite and humble and trembles at my word. Have you learned the love of God in such a way that it makes you tremble? Malachi's burden in this book is to show us a God whose goodness makes us tremble. Let me say that again. Malachi's burden in this book is to reveal to us a God whose goodness makes us tremble. Now, let me show you some texts to undergird that statement. Verse 6. If I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Verse 5 of chapter 2. My covenant with Levi was a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear. And he feared and stood in awe of my name. Chapter 3, verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against all those who oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow, the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see the point of the book? God's point is to reveal to us a God who in his goodness towards us makes us tremble. And if that doesn't make sense to you, please listen this morning. I have thought very often about the preaching of these things. You see, Malachi's burden in this book is, I have loved you, says the Lord, in such a way that the revelation of the, the Lord's love is unfolded in a way that makes us tremble. Now, as I've thought about this, how do you preach, or should you preach on these things? That is, should you preach about the doctrine of election, reprobation? And over the last seven years, my general reflection on this matter has been to say that I should go slow, patient, easy, because these things are for well-taught congregations, mature congregations. And those of you who have been around for seven years know that in the first five years of my ministry here, I never made one of these so-called doctrines of grace an explicit subject matter for any sermon. 
I have felt rebuked this week in reading this text and corrected. You know why? I stared at this text and I read it and I read it and it, it clobbered me yesterday that the audience to whom this text is directed is not mature nor well taught. They are skeptical. They are careless. They are indifferent. They are disobedient. They are adulterous. They are stingy. And to this people, Malachi preaches concerning the sovereign, unconditional, electing love of God in terms more bold, more forthright than anywhere in the Old Testament. And I was rebuked with my little view that these doctrines are just for the establishment of the mature. They are just for the deepening of the well-taught. And this text said, you're wrong. These doctrines are for the humiliation of the proud. These doctrines are for the humbling of the presumptuous who dally in God's presence as though they were equal partners with him. So I'm much emboldened this morning not to hold back on this text. Not to say, wait a minute, there are immature people in the congregation. There are sinners here. There are newcomers. Because Malachi didn't hold back. There's something about this doctrine that is tailor-made for both the mature to take them deep in God and make them strong for tragedy. And for worldly people who need to be brought up short in their presumption, presumption before God. In either case, wherever you are on the continuum this morning, there is matter for your consideration. Let's go to verse 2 now. I have loved you, says the Lord. And the Israelites respond very skeptically, almost snidely. How hast thou loved us? Now, let's just stop right here. Test yourselves. How would you answer that question in your own life? How hast thou loved me? Is your life and your family in such a shambles this morning that you're tempted to say with the Israelites, how have you loved me? Show me some love. Anybody got that in your heart this morning? All of us have some of it sometimes. God's answer, therefore, is utterly important to this question. How hast thou loved us, they ask. And he answers in a way nobody would expect him to answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Says the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, what sort of answer is that? How hast thou loved us? And the answer comes back, I loved you. And I didn't love your brother. I hated your brother. 
what kind of an answer is that? Is it an answer at all? Is it just a repetition? I love Jacob. How have you loved us? I love Jacob. No, it's not just a repetition. Because we just left out a little phrase which is utterly crucial. Namely the question, was not Esau Jacob's brother? What does that mean? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Why did God ask that question? He asked that question because the answer to that question contains the key to the meaning of the love of God. If you can answer that question and understand your answer, you understand the essence of God's love towards his people. What's the answer? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, the answer is yes, he was. In fact, he was not only his brother, he was his twin brother. And he was not only his twin brother, he was the elder of the twins. And therefore, by all rights and privileges in that culture, he and not Jacob should have gotten the blessing and the inheritance. What's the point of saying that? What's God's point? How is he answering their question? How hast thou loved us? Here's what he's saying. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? I could just as easily have chosen Esau as you. Weren't you twins? Isn't he in fact your elder? But I chose you, Jacob. And I hated him. That's God's answer. How have you loved us? Isn't Esau your brother? And I hated him. And loved you. So I'll put it in a sentence. The answer of God to the question, How hast thou loved us? is... I have loved you with free, sovereign, unconditional, electing love. That's how I have loved you. Let's take those words one at a time. I have loved you with electing love. I chose you for myself and I didn't choose Esau. Don't you see what love means? I chose you, not Esau. Unconditional love? I loved you unconditionally. You were still in the womb when I said to your mother, the elder will serve the younger. You had not done one thing, good or evil, when I set you over Esau and chose you for my own. It was unconditional love. Absolutely. Sovereign. I loved you sovereignly. Nobody was forcing me to love you. Nobody had my arm behind my back. Nobody was constraining me from outside myself. I was totally in control, totally in charge when I chose to love you. It was sovereign love. Free. I loved you freely. It spewed out of me like a volcano. You didn't buy it. 
You didn't give to me that I should pay back to you. It was free. How hast thou loved us, God? Was not Esau your brother? And yet, I love you. And I hated Esau. And it was nothing in you that won my love for you. Now, what about you right now? If you're a Christian here this morning, and you say to God, how have you loved me? Will you answer with God's answer? Very specifically, can you say, and I hope you say it with tears, my sister, my brother, we grew up in the same home. We heard all the same teaching. We came from the same womb. We went to the same church. And here I sit under the word of God, heaven bound. And they could care less, as hard as nails against God. Does that make you tremble? Do you tremble that you are here this morning under the love of God? Or do you take credit for it? Sure. I believed. I got myself here. Or do you tremble before the love of God? You remember the college roommate? At Bethel? The university? You thought they were a Christian all that while. And you graduated. And God took you into the narrow path and you're sitting here today feeling the sweetness of God's love. And they're sleeping around. Couldn't give a rip for the king of kings. Does it make you tremble? I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved me? Wasn't Esau your brother? Probably the most striking thing in this text is that God chooses to highlight his love for the descendants of Jacob by contrasting it with his hatred for the descendants of Edom or of Esau. What about Edom? What about Esau and Edom, his descendants? What does God mean when he says, Esau I hated? Now to answer that question, you don't need to go back to Deuteronomy or over to Matthew 10 or anywhere else. Just read the next two verses which unfold the meaning of divine hatred. Let's read them. I have hated Esau. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down till they are called the wicked country. The people with whom the Lord is angry or indignant forever. Now, in those two verses, there are four aspects of divine hatred. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, 
God's hate means that he opposes their prosperity and their comforts. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Second, God's hatred means that he will keep on doing this and will not suffer his judgment to be resisted. Verse 4, if Edom says, well, we're shattered now, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. In other words, he intends to go on keeping them under judgment. Third, God's hate for Esau means that as a whole, the nation has been given over to wickedness. This is very important because at this point, we get a glimpse into the justice of God in the rejection of Esau. says in verse 4, near the end, Till they are called the wicked country. In other words, God is not bringing judgments upon an innocent people. You see that? God is not bringing judgments upon an innocent, righteous people. They are a wicked country. When God passed over Esau and chose Jacob, he did not decree that an innocent Esau would be judged. Rather, what God decreed was to pass Esau by, to withhold his electing love, which he owes to no one, and to give him up. To wickedness. Now there's a mystery here. And I don't claim to understand or answer all the questions that even my little mind can raise over a text like this. We see through a glass darkly. There are things about God we are not intended to understand in this age. The secrets of the Lord belong to the Lord. But there are things revealed we must embrace. For example, God did not choose the descendants of Esau. He passed them by and withheld his electing love from them. As a result, Esau gave reign to wickedness. And as a result of that, this brings us to the fourth element in the divine hatred It says at the end of verse 4, the Lord is angry with them forever. With the wicked country. Now, why does God inspire Malachi to begin his message to the worldly Israelites and to us with words like these? I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? Is not Esau your brother? Yet I loved you and hated him. That is, I loved you with free, sovereign, unconditional, electing love. Why does God begin this book like this? And the answer is surely first, 
to humble us, to take away all our presumption, to remove boasting in ourselves, to cut the nerve of pride that boasts over the Esau's of the world, to put to naught the cavalier sense of self-reliance that lets us dally around in the presence of God as though we were equal partners in this affair of salvation, to make you tremble with tears of joy that you are loved by God. But there's more, and I close with this, verse 5. Verse 5 gives us the explicit purpose of God in revealing these things to the Israelites who had become so worldly and self-centered, demeaning to God that they brought broken, wounded sheep to offer and never gave their tithes. Here's what he says to them is the purpose for his revelation. Your own eyes shall see this. And the this refers to the judgments upon Edom. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In other words, not only should the people of God experiencing the electing love of God, say, Great is the Lord at Bethlehem. Great is the Lord in the evangelical church. Great is the Lord among His people whom He's chosen for Himself. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord in Edom. Why does he say that? Because there is a temptation when you are a small minority in a world of unbelief to look outside and say, he's out of control. Sure, he's won himself a little pocket of believers, but out there, he doesn't have any power anymore. He's not in charge. There's no greatness of God in the wicked places of Minneapolis. He has lost the reins and the horse is running wild and he's clutching his cheeks and does not know what to do next. This verse says, no, the Lord is great beyond the borders of Israel. When he brings judgment upon Edom, he is great in judgment. The Lord reigns in Albania. The Lord reigns in Albania. And he infallibly accomplishes his purposes. And we should pray that it's the same as his purposes in China in the last 40 years. Let us humble ourselves this morning under the mighty hand of God. Let us give him the glory, all the glory for our salvation. And let us not grow weary in savoring strengthening and spreading the vision of our great God. For great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. And I would like you to sing a hymn of affirmation with me, printed right here at the end of your worship folder. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Shall we stand as we sing?